and I pray God's blessing upon our time tonight. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, we come to you, Lord, and I thank you, Father God, that you are Lord over all the earth. I thank you, Father, for the, the way you bless us, God, and how you keep us, God. I praise you, Lord. I thank you for this time tonight to teach this lesson. And so, Father, I pray that it will go forward. Your word will go forth in power and in might, and you will use it for your glory in the earth. I pray, Lord, for all those that can join in and listen. And, Father, I pray that you will speak to their hearts tonight, that you will feed us from your table and help me as your servant to be able to teach this message and to share your heart. And so, Father, I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome to you if you're able to join in, and I trust that this is coming through well, um, although I can't seem to see anything, but that's okay. We're going to move forward and trust the Lord anyway. Tonight, I'd like to consider the sixth feast of the, of the annual fall feast. that We had three of them. There are three of them that we will be studying. And last week we looked at trumpets, the first of the fall feast, and today we're going to look at the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, and then next week we will wrap up this particular series of Facebook Live video teachings with the Feast of Tabernacles, the final of the annual feast. Remember from last week's lesson, we saw how the Feast of Trumpets occurs on the first day of the seventh month, and then it begins the annual fall feast. Trumpets prophetically speaks, we believe, of the rapture of the church, when Jesus comes in the air to regather his church to himself, and we believe this to be prior to the tribulation period. Excuse me, it's interesting that immediately following the Feast of Trumpets, on that same day, it begins a period of time that's for 10 days that's called the Days of Awe, A-W-E, Awe. 10 days from the 1st through the 10th, and those are in between the Feast of Trumpets and the Feast of the Day of Atonement. Psalm 27 is read every day of this period, and this time period is considered to be a very special time of calling to repentance in preparation for the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, the Jews believed that the names were inscribed into the Book of Life for those that were righteous and repentant who were worthy of it, and that they were inscribed there for another year. And they believed in this Day of Atonement that it would cover their sins for another year. So the focus of the 10 days of awe was to prepare them to repent in hope of receiving atonement and a covering for their sins. Prophetically, it is very possible that these 10 days of awe also have a prophetic meaning. We tend to hold to what's called a pre-tribulation rapture. Now, I realize that that there are differences among different people in beliefs about the end times and the rapture of the church and when we're going home and how all of these things are going to transpire. And because they are future events that have not yet occurred, none of us can say with absolute positive certainty beyond what we believe the Bible teaches. However, 
we do base our beliefs upon what we see in Scripture and what we read in the Word of God, which is the authority. Because of that, we tend to hold to the pre-tribulation rapture. This is a hell, it is held and has been held by mainstream Christianity for centuries. It was apparently held by the apostles and the New Testament authors as well, based upon their writings. They tended to live and believe in a doctrine of eminence, meaning that Jesus could come at any moment, at any time, even within their lifetimes. As a matter of fact, Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4, when he wrote that passage, he said, we who are alive and remain, speaking as if he intended to be a part of that group. So he wrote as if he expected to be alive when this event was to happen. This doctrine is held by several early church followers as well, and by many today, including me and our ministry. This doctrine, the pre-tribulation rapture, believes that the rapture or the regathering happens prior to the events that unfold in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. The seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments found in the book of Revelation. And we typically call those the tribulation period. And it represents Revelation 6 through 19. It's a specific period of judgment for the world, for their wickedness and rebellion against God that has been willful and continual. And it's also a specific period where God will refocus on the Jewish people and on Israel, where he will draw the Jews in a special way to receive him as Messiah, he will fulfill Romans chapter 9 through 11 and Zechariah 12 verses 10 through 14, for instance, as well as many other scriptures. There are prophetic words that speak about all Israel being saved. God is going to woo them to himself. Jesus even prophesied and spoke of a time period called that we tend to call the flight to the wilderness. And Jesus spoke about that prophetic about this time period when he would, um, when the Jews would need to flee into the wilderness to a place that was prepared for them, a shelter that was prepared for them there. And during that time, according to Hosea chapter 2, verse 14, he will woo them to himself. Typically, the tribulation period is, is considered to be a seven-year period, and that comes because of Daniel's 70th week prophecy found in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. It's Israel's final week and also typically called the time of Jacob's trouble, according to Jeremiah 30, verse 7. However, the entire tribulation may be longer than seven years. It could be eight, could be ten, we don't know. It, we're unsure about exactly how long it happens and how long it takes for all of those events to unfold. But one thing that scripture does point out is it is not the rapture of the church that begins the tribulation. It is, according to Daniel's 70th week prophecy, it is the signing of a particular covenant or treaty or pact 
that uh, a specific one that will begin the seven-year countdown, not the rapture of the church. So we don't know exactly how long that gap may be if there is a gap between the rapture and the start of Daniel's 70th week. The 10 days of awe do seem to vividly represent this time period that we call the tribulation. It's 10 days, according to scripture, that's listed as a time period of testing. I want to read you two passages that speak of that. One is found in Revelation 2 verse 10, and it says this, Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. That's one place where we see ten days associated with a period of testing or a time of testing. The other place where we see that is found in Daniel chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Daniel and his friends have been taken to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar, and they have been um, encouraged and commanded to eat certain kinds of food. And Daniel says, if we eat this way, it would defile us, and we have purposed not to be defiled. May we please? And he appealed to them to let him eat a strict diet, and this is where we are now. And he asked for that period to be tested. So let's pick it up. In Daniel chapter 1, verse 12, it says this, Please test your servants for 10 days. This is Daniel speaking. And let them give us vegetables to eat, water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. So he consented with them in this matter and tested them 10 days. So 10 days, which this is 10 days of awe, 10 days does appear to be a testing period according to scripture, so it's very possible that it could correlate with this seven plus years of the tribulation time represented by Revelation 6 through 19. It also fits into the biblical pattern in the feast because trumpets was that regathering of believers to himself. Then the 10 days of all may represent this tribulation time period. And then Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, which we are studying tonight, definitely signifies the time period of the second coming of Jesus as its final fulfillment, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. So this final feast represents Messiah's coming kingdom coming in Jerusalem. That's the Feast of Tabernacles, which we will talk about next week. So all of this fits into a biblical pattern as to how these fall feasts may represent prophetic events that we will see shortly being unfold. So now let's get into detail about the Day of Atonement. It's interesting that this is the sixth of the seven annual feasts. Six represents the number of man in Scripture, and the Day of Atonement is all about man's or mankind, men and women, man's need for atonement. So let's turn back now to Leviticus chapter 23,
where we've been taking our summary text of all the feasts. They're listed in summary form here. And we're going to read from verses 26 through 32. <coughs> Excuse me. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Also the tenth day of this seventh month shall be the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. And you shall do no work on that same day, for it is the day of atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For any person who is not afflicted in soul on that same day shall be cut off from his people. And any person who does not, who does, excuse me, who does any work on that same day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict your souls on the ninth day of the month at evening. From evening to evening, you shall celebrate your Sabbath. So here's where we read the summary instructions about this Yom Kippur Day of Atonement. Let's look at a couple of points here before we dive into the meaning that speak of this Day of Atonement in detail. First, the Day of Atonement represents the day of covering for sin or final judgment on sin. Also, in the Jewish wedding theme, it would correlate to the wedding ceremony. As a matter of fact, the Jews understood the wedding ceremony in one particular form to be a personal Day of Atonement. In some of their writings, it said, Yom Kippur is the holiest day in Judaism. It is also the highest holy day and the most solemn of all the feasts. It is the only biblically mandated fast day. They choose to fast other days, but this was a mandated fast. The Lord said, you shall afflict your souls, which means they were to fast on that day. So now let's look at the details of what scripture has told us so far. It's held on the 10th day of the seventh month, which is also the last day of the 10 days of awe. Other names for this day of atonement, we've mentioned Yom Kippur, that's the most widely known one. It's also called face to face. It's called the day or the great day. And it's also called in Acts chapter 27 verse nine, the fast. It's called the great shofar or shofar hagadol and nila, the closing of the gates. One other note to make too is that when there was a jubilee year, the jubilee year was always proclaimed on the day of atonement. Lastly, they read Isaiah 58 on the day of atonement too, which would speak to them about the fast that God approved of. So now let's look at Leviticus chapter 16, but let's consider one other passage first. Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. I want to read that one to you. Then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. 
and before all the people I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. In this passage, we read about these two sons of Aaron that had become very irreverent, impetuous, they were presumptuous, they were careless, they did not awe God, and they did not take him seriously. So God picks up from that episode, you will see in the reading of this next passage, which is Leviticus chapter 16. And this is the passage that gives all the details about exactly how the Day of Atonement was to be done. We're going to read a few select passages from this chapter of Leviticus chapter 16. First, I'd like to read verses 1 through 10. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. That's what we just read about in Leviticus chapter 10. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, lest he die, for I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Thus Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering and of a ram as a burnt offering. He shall put the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body, he shall be girded with a linen sash and with the linen turban, he shall be attired. These are the holy garments. Therefore he shall wash his body in water and put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats as a sin offering and one ram as a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself and make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and to let it go as the scapegoat into the wilderness. Now, turn, turn down and move down to, excuse me, I think I skipped over too much. Verse 15, and we will read 15 through 22. Thus, then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, bring its blood inside the veil, do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions for all their sins. And so he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting, which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. There shall be no man in the tabernacle of meeting when he goes in to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out that he may make atonement for himself, for his household, and for all the assembly of Israel. And he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. Then he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times, 
cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. And then verse 29 through 34. This shall be a statute forever for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls or fast and do no work at all whether a native of your own country or a stranger who dwells among you. For on that day, the priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, and you shall afflict your souls. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated to minister as priest in his father's place shall make atonement and put on the linen clothes, the holy garments, then he shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary and he shall make atonement for the tabernacle of meeting and for the altar and he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. This shall be an everlasting statute for you to make atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins once a year. And he did this and he did as the Lord commanded Moses. Hallelujah. So here we see the total uh, elaborate indications and, and definitions of exactly the details of what happens. So God instru instructs them in the exact procedure for entering the holy place because that is where his presence was and he is a holy God. And as we read in Leviticus 10, those that approach him, he must be regarded as holy and that he must be glorified in their presence. So that's why he ties this to the situation with Nadab and Abihu, because they came irreverently and impetuously and carelessly. They did not have the awe of God. So God sets up the instructions for this. Leviticus shows us how to worship and approach God the right way, the way that his holiness demands with reverence and respect appreciation and humility. So he gives us all these instructions. He says you have to enter with the blood or by the blood. There, uh, the sin offering was a recognition of our sins and our need for atonement. In the fulfillment of this, it's taken care of by Jesus on the cross. Let's read, as a matter of fact, Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to go to Hebrews chapter 10 right now for you and read a passage in Hebrews chapter 10. We want to read verses 10 through 22 of Hebrews chapter 10 because the author of Hebrews ties all things in the Old Testament, especially in regard to the sacrifices, the sacrificial system, the priesthood, the Levitical system, all of that he points out and he brings us to understand 
how this is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, the book of Hebrews can be considered the bridge between the Old Testament and the New. And it explains all the things in the Old Testament about Jesus Christ, about his sacrifice, about the whole of the system and the priesthood. And it connects it with the revelation and the fulfillment of how these things are fulfilled in the New Testament. So in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, it says this, <clears throat> talking about the will of God, by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. If you'll remember in Leviticus 16, it said they had to do that once a year. It had to be repeated over and over once a year. But Jesus, he is the fulfillment once for all. Continuing on in verse 11, and every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds, I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there's no longer an offering for sin. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us, through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So here, remember, we, they had to, the priest, the high priest had to enter with blood. And so this blood represents the blood of Jesus. And we enter the presence of God through prayer and worship by and because of the blood of Jesus. Notice in this passage, it tells us Jesus died once for all. He offered himself and his blood on the altar of the cross. As a matter of fact, in Leviticus 16, it spoke about how the blood had to be sprinkled seven times on the altar there were seven places on Jesus' body, seven places from his body that his blood was spilled on the altar called the cross. That is the place where we are sanctified and where he has now granted us access because of his work on the cross by a new and living way. He offered himself to God. Jesus fulfilled both the sin offering and the burnt offering spoken of on the Day of Atonement. 
The burnt offering is an, a willing offering, a surrender of one whole self. And then he became the sin offering for us and on our behalf. And so we are able to offer ourselves to God, as Romans 12, 1 says. Notice the high priest's garments when they would go in for the Day of Atonement. It was only the white linen garments that they could wear, what the Bible calls the holy garments. The other garments are called the golden garments, the other four that the priest would wear. That's the blue, uh, the blue robe of the ephod and the breastplate and the other robe that they would wear and the high priest mitre. Those were part of the holy garments. And so those were not what was commanded by God to be worn here. Here, the high priest could only enter with the linen garments. And I believe that those speak of purity and of the fact that, that we come before God humbly with no adornment, no beauty of our own, none of the bells and pomegranates, no, no bells and whistles. We come plainly. We, we come with no decoration and no added things. Hallelujah. We have to enter that way when we come into the presence of God because those that approach him, he must be regarded as holy. He told us that in Leviticus chapter 10. There were additional sacrificial off, uh, animals that were used here as well. So we understand these in light of Christ's fulfillment as well when we consider this feast. First of all, there were two goats and one ram for a burnt offering. The ram takes our minds back and reminds us of Genesis chapter 22, when Abraham was tested by God and called to offer his son Isaac. And there was a ram, a substitute, a ram caught in the thicket. And that's a beautiful picture of Jesus bearing the crown of thorns. He was our burnt offering. He was the ram for the burnt offering. He was a willing son surrendering to the Father's will, just like the picture that God was showing Abraham in Genesis chapter 22. Then they had two goats. One goat was for the Lord. And this pictured Christ's death as our atoning sacrifice for the entire world. His one death, once for all, has paid and atoned, covered, not only covered, but washed away the sin of the world for all who will believe in him and who will apply his blood to their hearts and to their lives. Then there was a second goat. This goat was for Azazel, or it was called the scapegoat in our Bibles. That goat would have the, the there was, it represented an entire removal. It was called the goat of departure. It was the goat that would go away and disappear. And Aaron had to offer a bull offering for himself and his household. He had to take a censer with coals from the altar of burnt offering mix them with incense and place those on the golden off altar of offering of incense excuse me and that created a sweet smelling aroma and a sweet smelling smoke before the lord in his glorious presence jesus offered himself for all of his household as well for all of us 
Aaron would take the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and sprinkle it seven times before the mercy seat. Hallelujah. Jesus fulfilled that. As a matter of fact, Paul calls him in Romans chapter 3, our mercy seat. It uses the word translated in many of our Bibles as propitiation, but it means mercy seat. Hallelujah. Then there was the goat for the Lord, the first goat. Let's talk about the first goat. It was killed on behalf of the people. They took the blood of the goat and they sprinkled it on the mercy seat and they sprinkled it seven times before the mercy seat, just like the bull. The high priest had to be alone in the presence of God when this was done. No one else could be inside the tabernacle. You think about Jesus on the cross. There were a few people there watching him. Uh, it was certainly a public display. Mary was at his feet. John the, Bapt uh, John the uh, Apostle, excuse me, John the Apostle was there. But in essence, there was a lot of ways he was alone when this was done as well. He had to make atonement. This whole sacrifice, this whole day was designed to be centered around atonement. And it was because of the uncleanness of the people and their sins. Jesus fulfilled this all on his death on the cross. He atoned. He covered and washed away the sin of the whole world for all who will believe and receive him. He took all of our sins upon himself. And so he was the first goat, the goat for the Lord. Lastly, we have this second goat, the goat for Azalel, Azazel, the goat of departure, the goat that would remove and go away. Aaron would put his hands on this goat and transfer the sin of the people to this goat. He would appoint a suitable man a person that was timely, a person that was ready then. And he would send the goat carrying the sin and the guilt of the people away into the wilderness to an uninhabited land, and it would be released, never to be seen again. It was permanently gone. Now, this particular goat is the one that's the most difficult to understand in terms of how expressly it is fulfilled and so we'll talk about it in just a moment but this feast remember was on the 10th day of the seventh month after the 10 days of awe between trumpets and the feast of tabernacles it was a high sabbath where they did no work at all and the whole purpose was atonement and cleansing of sin it was a day that they could have their debts canceled and washing of them pure and clean from their sins. Now, Jesus fills all of the feasts to the full. He fulfills them with meaning and with substance. The Day of Atonement is no different. As the second of these fall feasts, they are prophetic. These things have not quite happened yet, but they are coming to pass in coming days. Welcome as you join in. They are prophetic and they speak of Jesus' ultimate fulfillment that is yet to come. Now, when we see the Jewish prophecies, Hebrew prophecies, they bear an important and perhaps unique element to them. 
Much of them hold both a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. This very well could be evident, especially in the Day of Atonement. Part one was done at Jesus' first coming, and then the completion of it will be finished at his second coming, which is all about the final two feasts. As the Day of Atonement speaks of the judgment and atonement for sin, let's consider these and understand them in light of Jesus fulfilling them. First, the requirement for atonement is the blood. That is found in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 6 through 15. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 6 says this, now when these things had been thus prepared, the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time to which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience, concerned, concerned only with food and drink, various washings, and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, <clears throat> With the greater, excuse me, and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. And then Romans 3.25 is where Paul specifically calls Jesus our propitiation or our mercy seat. Jesus was the mercy seat. Hallelujah. His innocent blood was required to be shed for the remission of sins. He is the righteous one, the innocent one who willingly died in place of the guilty. In John chapter 20, verse 11 and 12, and I don't think I have this one pulled, so let me flip there for just a moment. But in John chapter 20, it's interesting, in verse 11 and 12, because Mary Magdalene has come to the tomb and Jesus is not there. He has arisen. And so let's pick it up in verse 11. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet. 
where the body of Jesus had lain. Now, we go on in the reading of that and understand that she saw the resurrected Lord. She saw him. He, she thought him to be the gardener at first, but then she came to understand that it was Jesus. But the point I want you to understand is when she looked into the tomb, she saw the mercy seat. Blood was spilled on that place where Jesus had lain, and there were two angels on each end. This symbolized that Jesus is the fulfillment perfectly of the Ark of the Covenant. And it symbolized that the whole meaning of the Ark of the Covenant is fulfilled in the life, death, and burial of Jesus Christ. He is the living Ark. Hallelujah. And so we need to understand that when the high priest would go into the holy place once a year, that was the Ark of the Covenant. That was the mercy seat. That was where the presence of God was. Hallelujah. So understanding this, Jesus was righteous and innocent. His innocent blood had been shed to atone for the sin of all people in its ultimate fulfillment. He is that goat and the sin offering in the bull that was for the Lord. So when he died once for all, Hebrews tells us, with his own blood, he obtained for us eternal redemption, eternal atonement. On the day of atonement, they would have to go back every year and repeat it, and it only gave them the hope of atonement for one year until the next year, and then they'd have to do it again, and do it again, and do it again, and do it again. But the great thing about Jesus Christ is his blood was spilled one time for all. He obtained eternal redemption, not just to cover our sin for a year, but to wash it away forever. Hallelujah. So Jesus filled to the full this requirement of the blood. The high priest would take the blood into the most holy place and apply it to the mercy seat. Jesus did that for us. He has applied his blood upon the mercy seat in heaven. Hallelujah. His blood. Hello, and I'm sorry about that. Apparently the, the video cut out on me again. And so I'd like to pick up where we were a moment ago. We just begun to talk about what that may represent. The first idea is that it may also represent Jesus Christ. The second is that it could represent the law, which could never make anyone sinless or righteous. It was not sufficient and was done away with because of Jesus Christ. The third is that this goat may represent Satan because he was the one that, that started the whole sin problem to begin with and may bear that ultimate responsibility for our sin. Now, if that's true, how could that possibly be him? Well, he was the one for the, that started the whole reason for why we needed atonement through his deceptive lies and his temptations to Adam and Eve in the garden. So he may bear that responsibility ultimately. And although he was defeated on the cross, I apologize for all these technical problems that we seem to keep ha having, but we were talking 
a moment ago about the scapegoat and we're trying to understand more about what it represents. One idea is that it could represent Christ as well. Another is that it could represent the law or that it could represent the devil. I don't know exactly which it is. However, if it were the devil, it may be that it's it's um, going to be finally fulfilled because that was the last thing that was dealt with on the Day of Atonement was the scapegoat. And so it could potentially represent the devil um, and we see how he will be fully and permanently dealt with upon Jesus Christ's return, which is the fulfillment, the completion of the fulfillment of the Day of Atonement and is coming. I'd like to read a few uh, verses in Revelation as we begin to close this out. Now I saw heaven open. This is Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, flesh of captains, flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. This is part of that final uh, battle that is, is attempted against the Lord God, against the coming Son of God. And then let's turn over and read in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. Then it says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and he cast him into the bottomless pit, shut him up, and set a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And then if you turn over to verse 7 through 15, you see the remainder of that story. Verse 7 says, Now when the seven years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose name is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. Fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So this tells us what the final end is for the devil. So if this scapegoat possibly represents him, he may fit in this pattern because of some of these things here. First of all, he's grabbed, he's grabbed with a chain by this angel and he's sent into the abyss, which is an uninhabited land. As a matter of fact, according to Luke chapter 8, verses 26 through 31, 
where Jesus is healing a demoniac and delivering the, him from these demons, the demons ask to please not send them to this bottomless pit. So if the demons themselves don't want to go there, that would give us an indication of how awful this place is. And so Satan gets bound there, and according to Revelation we just read, it's called a prison for him. And he's held there for the thousand years of Christ's reign. Then at the end of that, he will find his permanent home being cast into the lake of fire forever and ever. So this is why the Day of Atonement matters. It matters because atonement was required for our sin. It was required that there was the shedding of innocent blood to cover the sins of the guilty. We could never pay for our own sin. We needed someone to make atonement for us. We needed the goat that was for the Lord. We needed the sin offering. We needed the burnt offering that Jesus became. And so through his death, once for all, he has obtained for us eternal redemption and, and given us remission and forgiveness of our sins. And he has written our names into the Lamb's book of life through faith in Jesus. Hallelujah. So this is what the Day of Atonement is all about. It shows us the dire importance of Jesus' blood to atone for our sins. He has done his part. Now it's up to us, each and each person individually, to receive him and his atoning sacrifice for sin so that your name and my name are written in the Lamb's Book of Life forever not just for another year. As a matter of fact, one of the greetings that the Jews would have for the Day of Atonement was a request and a, um, a greeting and a desire that their names be inscribed in the Book of Life for another year. Well, beloved, when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and when I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and receive the atonement that his death once for all has bought for us and paid for for us, our names are written in the Lamb's book of life forever. Praise God for Jesus' atoning blood that fulfills this feast of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, not just for Israel's sins, but for the sins of the whole world, the Jew and the Gentile alike, you and me. It was all done by Jesus because he was the atoning sacrifice that the day of atonement represents. Jesus fulfills all of these feasts. Bless his holy name. As we conclude tonight, we will have one more week of study, uh, trusting that we don't have all these um, technical issues, but we will have one more week of study as we consider the final seventh of the annual feast, the final feast listed in Leviticus 23, the Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkot. And so let's pray. Father, I pray that you will bless this message and that those that needed to hear it will hear it and it will um, enlighten them and help them to understand Jesus in a deeper way and what he has done for us once for all. Thank you, Jesus, for your atoning sacrifice once for all on our behalf and for writing our names in the Lamb's Book of Life through simple faith in you and belief in you as we call upon you to become our Lord and our Savior. 
In Jesus' name, bless the people and feed us and minister God according to your will. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Lord willing, we'll see you next week.